in three, two, one. Most businesses just try to be better than their competitors, constantly fighting for every bit of market share. If you're looking to stand out from the competition and authentically define, develop, and ultimately dominate a new category of business, you'll need to answer the questions, what's the problem you solve? What solution must exist? And why are you that solution? So if you're looking to dominate your market, then you're going to enjoy my conversation with best-selling author and award-winning columnist, Kevin Maney. Well, hey, Kevin, welcome to the program. We're delighted to have you. Yeah, thanks, Michael. Appreciate you having me on. Now, where are we talking to you from today? I'm in New York City and in my apartment in New York, where I work most of the time. Lovely, lovely. So it was a great city. It's absolutely amazing. Glad you could join us. We're really excited to talk about what it's all about, it's category design and how to make that work for small organizations, Fortune 500, small entrepreneurs. You are the author of Play Bigger, How Pirates, Dreamers, and Innovators Create and Dominate Markets. And I found that a really, really interesting book. But before we get into that and dive into that material, let's talk about your background just a little bit, because I know you were a journalist for about three decades, 30 years, wrote and covered the business space. How did you come out of that? Were you in college, university, and all of a sudden you decided, hey, I'm going to cover this? I know you've talked about the difference between being a reporter and a journalist, and I know you consider yourself a journalist, not necessarily reporting on you know the facts of a particular issue. What uh, prompted you to go that direction? Yeah, so I grew up in a town called Binghamton, New York, and Binghamton, New York is, it's actually in this little pocket of towns, and right next to it is Endicott, New York, which is the place where IBM was essentially born. And I grew up with an enormous sort of IBM presence in my life. So I always knew I wanted to be a writer of some sort and journalism seemed like a way to be a writer and actually get paid for it versus trying to write like a novel or something. I had no particular necessarily interest in business or technology, but when I graduated from college, they had a couple of openings and they were like, ones that I thought would be pretty crappy jobs, like being the night cops reporter chasing ambulances. And one of the other openings was as a business reporter. And I said, I'll try the business reporter thing. If you're going to be a business reporter in Binghamton, you're going to cover IBM because that's the biggest fact in town or was. It's completely gone from there now. And so I started writing about IBM and I found that I really liked it. It just was a nice fit. But it was also, it turned out to be one of the great accidental career moves of all time because we're talking like early to mid 80s, right at the moment when the personal computer starts catching on. And before that period of time, most people didn't give a hoot about technology as a business coverage or something to read about. And then all of a sudden it was on everybody's minds. I got to ride first the personal computer boom and then the internet. And so- Right place, right time. Right place, right time. So you started covering that and you've interviewed everybody. I'm jealous of all the people you've got to meet. Jeff Bezos, Mr. Gates, Steve Jobs, Andy Grove, of course, Eric Schmidt. All of them. All of them. And, And what a great experience. Was there anything that you learned from interviewing all those giants and tech giants that there was some commonality other than being maybe a little on the crazy side or eccentric side? Were there common traits that you identified or found within each of those type of leaders? I can't say that was something I looked for, but I know, so we'll get back to this later, but fast forward to the kind of work I do now with companies and that whole historical database in my head about what Jeff Bezos would have done or what I remember talking to Bill Gates about it. And these are all the same kinds of problems and opportunities that come up with companies today. And it's wonderful to be able to draw on those things. I'm oftentimes working with a room full of, you know, 32-year-olds who don't have a real historical 
sense of what's happened in technology before, what's worked, what hasn't. These problems have been solved a hundred times before. And from all of that background, all those interviews and all that time with these companies, I can bring that forward and tell them stories and talk about what's happened in the past and why this thing won't work or this thing might. So it's a hugely valuable background. It was my 25-year-long MBA. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It's a PhD is what it is. And you start to see patterns and they're all my generation as well and came into play. So I remember having the first IBMs, the XTs, the floppy disks. When the first Macs came out, the bookstore, I remember buying books from Amazon when it was just books. And today, everybody, they grew up with cell phones and they're on seven, eight generations. They don't even know what it looks like. I was cleaning out record albums. Yeah, right. I told my kids they were the first CDs when there were still vinyls. Now, so what led you into the category design? So you've been doing journalism. You've written, I believe, seven or nine books, something like that. You cover a lot of territory. And then all of a sudden, you've decided to focus. And I know you've got some partners in on this. You created your own category within that whole space. What led you to that? Yeah. Again, like the first story is it's all accidental stuff that you have to sort of be ready to jump on when the opportunity's there, right? When you see it. That's right. And so what happened was I was an established author and these three guys, two of whom I'd met before in the technology arena, had a firm called Play Bigger. And they had all been former CEOs, company founders, whatever. And they had turned into this little firm of theirs was advising startups. And the core piece of what they were working around was this idea that it was much better in this day and age, especially to try to create a category, a new product category, rather than going into some existing product category. And there was a lot of research around the fact that especially in digital markets, because in digital markets, everybody anywhere in the right. planet can get the best version of whatever or the perceived best version of whatever that product is. It tends to be a winner-take-all situation in most categories. Most categories, you've got this one big kahuna that's sucking up most of the economics of the category, maybe a trailing number two and like a bunch of number threes that you can barely name. So if that's true, the kind of their logic was, if that's true, then if you're a, a company founder or a CEO, why would you not want to do everything you could to be the one that creates and wins a market category and becomes that big goon? Even if the category is smaller than some other big category, you stand to have more success by being the winner of that category than by being a second or third. And so if you go in with that logic of then the next sort of reverse engineering thing is how do you do everything you can to manage to be that company, right? That winner. That's what they were already doing, but they didn't have a full sort of menu of a discipline that was all pieced together and made sense. They just had that idea and their experience from running companies. And they got in touch with me and said, we'd love to host you for dinner. We think we have some interesting ideas. Maybe there's a book there. And so we had dinner and I knew from all the writing and work that I'd done that their central concept about categories and category winners and winner take all and stuff was right and was interesting. The rest of what they had wasn't together yet, but I thought, yeah, there's something worth exploring here. And I like these guys. So it's Al Ramadan, Christopher Lockhead, and Dave Peterson. And at least it'll be fun to do some work with them. Let's figure what we figure out. So we started going down that path and it really clicked. The four of us really clicked. And honestly, I have to say, I think you might have read something I wrote about this was that the two years or so I spent working on this with them probably is the most fun I've had as a writer in my life. Because we, we, we had a great time talking about the ideas. We met at Christopher's house in Santa Cruz. We'd spend Dad. a day in shorts and flip-flops and having a scotch at the end of the day and the whole thing. And we were a very irreverent, challenged the status quo kind of bunch. So the conversations were both really fun and interesting, but also it allowed me to translate that into the book. So the book is very irreverent and chatty, and there's a lot of throw some 
F words in there every once in a while, because that's the way we were, right? That's, that reflects the way the conversations went. And so I wrote this book with these guys and came out 2016. And I was already signed up to do the next book. I had another book I'd already started to work on by the time that one, Playvigor came out. I thought I was an author and that's what I was going to do. But what happened was Playvigor came out and it had an immediate and big impact. And it's been the best selling book I've ever been a part of. And certainly the most influential book I've ever been a part of. And it quickly turned into venture capitalists and CEOs and whatever calling us and saying, I read the book, you got to help us do what you wrote about in the book. And so they already had their consulting business that they were already doing this. I wasn't a part of that, but they basically ended up, I ended up starting a separate, but kind of sister consulting business, doing the same thing as they are. We're all friends. It's not competitive, but we started category design advisors to essentially, they were getting so much work, they couldn't do it all anyway. So it was because of from the book. So I started doing this, what we wrote about in the book and it became a profession. It's what I do now. And and by the way, it pays better than journalism. (laughs) No, I I would imagine that's good. Now you're a co-founder of category design advisors and to help companies identify and define and win new market categories. So let's start for our audience with an explanation of what you mean when you talk about category and category design. Let's define our terms. Yeah. So a category is essentially like a space that exists in people's brains, right? You need this thing. And if that space doesn't exist, whatever product you make or whatever your company is doing doesn't matter all that much. A good example of that is how hard has Facebook been pushing the metaverse on us? And yes, there's a core group that understands and likes that, but the general public doesn't have a space in their heads for, oh, I really need to be in the metaverse because actually Facebook has pretty much failed to create that category in our heads of, I need this because it's going to be this important thing in my life for this. It's going to solve a big problem for me. Yeah. Another example I like to talk about is with electric cars. So if you think about um, 20 years ago, if you and your family were going to have a conversation about what car do we buy next, there was no conversation that was, should we buy an electric car or should we buy a gas-powered car? The only thing there was a gas-powered car. Even though there were some electric cars that were being made, it just wasn't a space in people's minds where you thought that's one of the options here. And if Tesla had been like a tried to be a major car company 20 years ago, it had nowhere to go because that category didn't exist. So Tesla actually had to create the category of electric car in our heads. They created this image because before that, electric cars were usually something that was very expensive and not very good. And it was a Honda that wasn't very exciting. And so Musk managed to create this new category of electric car in our head that was about really cool cars that had this great software and they accelerated super fast. And at the same time, they were environmentally good and all. And suddenly this category of electric cars now exists for not only Tesla, but Ford and GM and Volkswagen, all these others to sell into. Yeah, everybody's doing it. Yep. What we talk to with companies is that some companies have come to us because they have this amazing vision. They've built this really cool product, but they don't have that space in people's heads yet. So how do we create the space? How do we tell people about the problem that this new technology is going to solve that they never thought of before? So they have a pull, they have a demand for this technology. They're not trying to push it on people and then everybody thinking like, I don't know what this is for. Other companies come to us because they've been grouped in a market space with 25 other companies and they're at best going to get a few percentage of market share out of that particular space. And they're saying like, we're not getting noticed. How do we take what we have and know, but build an adjacent new category that makes us seem different and helps us stand out and convinces customers to come to us rather than us having to try to sell the people who think that, why am I not buying from the big shot in this space? So the whole concept is it's kind of an inside outlook of strategy. It's how do you discover what this category that you need to create is? And then once you 
figure out what that is. How do you put words and a campaign around it so that people understand what the category is and why your product is the solution to that category? Your messaging and the different messaging. Can creating a category work for all types of businesses, product and service alike? Absolutely. I'll tell you, this. there's a great recent story that, because I get this question all the time, is how could you create a category in some old space that's been around forever and you whatever else? So in Portland, Oregon, there was this young woman who got frustrated because she loved watching women's sports. And she'd go into the typical bars, typical sports bars, and they never would put a women's sports on, or they maybe there'd be one screen and then five screens. Right. Of, you know. So she got this idea, I'm going to start a new kind of sports bar that only shows women's sports. And actually, she gave it the most brilliant name ever. Instead of calling it a sports bar, she calls it the sports bra. Sports bra. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Perfect. You'll remember that one. But so in this space of ancient space of a bar in a town, and this is not a global, this is one place in one city. She created what is an entirely new category of bar, the women's sports bar. And she's gotten a lot of attention for it because it's so unique and so interesting. And you know what? I could see if she's really a smart and ambitious, she could create a chain of these things all over the country. So you can create a category. It's just a matter of understanding what's not there, what's missing in the world, Instead of going in and doing what everybody else is doing and just saying, we're doing it a little bit better, go in and find that new space, that new missing, and create a solution to that missing. It's probably simple, but it's not easy. Michael Gerber, remember in his book, E-Myth, and where he talked about, we work too much in our businesses and not on our business. And what you do in your organization, you come in and you actually work on the business and look right. at opportunities. And to your point, I think you can create differentiation, uniqueness, distinctive value, a category and disrupt a category. An example comes to mind when my programs and talking, I talk about auto body shops or for car repair. And I say, you could take it down to, you take it down to a normal auto body repair place and they say, hey, we need your car for three hours. It's going to cost $250 to fix your car. Do you want to ride to work or do you can sit in our waiting room, have a donut and a coffee? The ride to work was something unique in the day. Now, of course, everybody does it. But what if a new guy comes to town? You know, what if Meany comes in and he's got this new auto body shop and it says, we'll come to your home tonight at eight o'clock. We'll pick up your car. We'll work on it all night long. We'll have it back in your driveway with keys and paperwork in the mailbox by 6 a.m. Would you pay a premium for that? And when I ask audiences, most audiences go, heck yeah, I can't be without my car all day. So they would pay 15, 20% more, but it's having a crew that works at night. And so I've actually had clients who have gone and gone, hey, we're going to do that Tuesday nights or Thursday nights. Those who want to work overtime, we're going to pay you more, better opportunity. Because a lot of businesses operate their businesses for their convenience, not for the convenience of their guests or their clients. Yeah, I think you could do it to a dental office with your lawyer, whether it doesn't matter what. It's about taking time and looking what's not being served in that area. But yeah, good point. This episode is sponsored in part by Rainmaker Digital Solutions, featuring ActiveCampaign. Looking to drive growth with customer experience automation? ActiveCampaign, the number one marketing automation platform for e-commerce, B2C and B2B companies, gives you the email marketing, marketing automation, and CRM tools you need to create incredible customer experiences. Active Campaign is the platform we use to reach, nurture, convert, and grow our business, and you can use it to grow yours. You can see why 150,000 plus businesses like yours choose Active Campaign to help them grow and become preferred in the markets they serve. You can also start your free trial by visiting our website and clicking on the Active Campaign trial link. As a bonus, we'll also give you a digital copy of my book, Becoming Preferred How to Outsell the Competition. 
And in the interest of full disclosure, I am a shareholder in the company. And now back to my conversation with Kevin Maney. You've studied lots of category leaders like Amazon and Airbnb and Uber, for example. What do all these stories have in common? Is there common ground with them all? Yeah, I believe what I take away from, yeah. from all of these is that they thought, so again, repeating what I've been saying, but they think about the problem to solve first. And most companies, I would say a vast majority of companies start with serendipity. They start with some accident. The Airbnb guys, there's a conference going on, all the hotels are sold out in San Francisco. They think, oh, hey, we could probably make a little extra money by a few people to come and sleep on our air mattresses and have some cat and crunch in the morning. And then when it works, they go, oh, maybe we could do this more often, or maybe we could get other people to do it. And you know, it starts building from there. So most companies start with some form of serendipity. And the key is, do you then realize what you've created and think about how it fits into the world? And does it solve a problem that needs to be solved? That's either a problem that has always existed and we've had terrible solutions to it, or maybe it's a new problem that didn't exist before, but is being created by the world we live in now. But if you can define that problem, so like we write about in the book, like to me, Salesforce was like an amazing example of that because Mark Benioff comes out and he says, instead of trying to say, we've created this sales software that exists in the cloud and here's why you should use it. This first act out of the box was you have this big CRM system that you bought from Siebel or SAP or somebody else. And you know if it breaks, you're screwed. I trained so, on Siebel, so I totally understand what you're talking about. So he comes out of the box with that no software logo, basically with a message of why would you want to have the software on your premises when you could have it in the cloud and have us maintain it and you just have to access it through the internet. Yeah. And so he created a problem in people's minds that they weren't quite aware of, yeah, you're aware of it, but didn't really frame it as like, there's a problem that could be solved, this on-premise software. And then said, now that you understand that's a problem, I have a solution for you. It's this cloud-based sales enablement software. Right. And now we've seen cloud-based everything. Everything is cloud-based. It's gone to that monthly recurring model. So everybody's looking for subscription versus just buying a piece of software, having to update it, all the CDs. So we see where it's disrupted entire industries and created new ones. Rackspace, you know, some of these companies, the Google, Amazon Cloud or AWS, it just expands from there. LinkedIn did a study about to the top 25 sought-after businesses. Can you tell us about some of the findings? I think you were part of that. We were part of it in that. So there was a, I guess, fun and satisfying story behind it. So out of the blue, my co-author Al Ramadan gets a call from Susie Welch, who is Jack Welch's wife at the time. Who Jack Welch has since died, but yeah. she was Jack Welch's wife. And Susie Welch was a force of her own, right? She used to be the editor of Harvard Business Review and mm -hmm. became a sought-after writer. And so LinkedIn had engaged her in a project to use LinkedIn data to identify what were the companies that the most talented people wanted to work and were there some commonalities among those companies. So Susie is doing this work for LinkedIn. And apparently, here's how the call went, apparently, according to Al. Al picks up the phone at Susie Welch asked, saying, I'm doing this study, whatever. And she said, I read Play Bigger. And I realized that most of the companies on the list would classify it as a category creator and winner that you wrote about in the book. So there's something there that like people want to work for companies that are these category winners. So then Al says, this was like soon after the book came out. How did you end up with a book? And Susie tells Al that, well, Jeff Bezos read it. That's and awesome. he liked it so much that he gave it to my husband, Jack. And Jack gave it to me. 
So right there, I'm thinking, oh, Jeff Bezos and Jack Welch both read. <laughs> you never know. Isn't that fun? That's exciting. Good for you. No, that's totally cool. That's a cool story. I say when we read up on that, we thought, oh, our listeners are going to love that story. That's good. It but makes the, sense. Uh, I, I do want to add the, the message yeah. for, again, a reinforcing message for the companies out there is yeah. that this is true. Companies that create and win categories are the companies that people think are the most exciting. And they have a much easier time drawing the top talent, which of course becomes a flywheel, right? They're already in the category lead and they start alluring the best talent. So they get farther and farther ahead of everybody else in that category. So again, another reason that you want to be that, you want to be that company. Do you find that companies in doing your homework and your research with these companies, you get these startups, they create new categories, they have success for a long period of time, but then they become complacent. Maybe they forget, you know, who they brought to the dance and they lose that edge. In other words, other companies come and even disrupt the disruptors. And it's like they get complacent or they fail to keep that innovation process. In other words, their own success is the catalyst to their demise. Have you seen that as well? Absolutely. No, absolutely. In fact, that's been another key group of companies that have come to us is saying, there's a couple of versions. One is we're maybe three years old and we built what we started out to build. We've actually had some success with it. But it's not that they don't know where to go from there. It's that there's six different ideas about where to go from there. Yeah, what's next? And the management team is not aligned around what the next thing is. And so the process that we go through when we work with companies is very good at like getting the management team around a table, having that conversation and having bubble up. Okay, we're able to start to see what is the next category you can build out of what you've already created? What's the next step? Or a spinoff, yeah. Yeah, or spinoff or whatever. That's one. The other is we had one of the biggest projects we've ever worked on was with LinkedIn has a, a huge division called LinkedIn Sales Solutions. All your sales people in your audience, I'm sure know it. Yeah, Navigator. And um, had been around for a decade or so. It was a billion dollar company within LinkedIn. And they were doing fine, but their growth was slowing because other Zoom Info and these others were nipping at their heels and trying to claim that they were a cheaper version of that or whatever. And the thing is that they knew they have data that nobody else has, and they have a knowledge of what goes on in the sales universe that nobody else could possibly have. They just didn't quite know where to take it next and how to frame it in a way that addressed what salespeople are encountering today. And so that was the conversation that we had with them. And working all together, we came up with this category that we ended up labeling deep sales and the story around it about why this needs to exist for the way salespeople work today. And it's much more about deeper knowledge of your prospects and working smarter, not better, or when it's smarter, not harder. And all this Zoom info is going to just feed you a fire hose of email addresses to spam, that kind of stuff. And just by having this new story to tell about a new sort of era of product that they could build, re-energized the whole division and re-energized the people that had to sell this product to people. And they've been going gung-ho ever since. It was a real re-energizing sort of a moment for them. And I do think that that can come out of these kinds of conversations. Yeah, it's like a business remodel. All of a sudden you're back in, you're liking your old house starts to look good. It's now functional again. Because things change quick, as we know with technology. A lot of our listeners, Kevin, are business owners, entrepreneurs, and they're feeling like they're lost in the sea of competition while they're trying to become industry leaders within their markets or the verticals, how they started their businesses. How do they know when it's the right time to stop competing that way traditionally and start creating and competing by creating a whole new category? Now? <laughs> Immediately. Get into it. Yeah, exactly. Well, here's what we will always tell people is that if you are in a space 
where there is a clear category leader. Yeah. There are very strong cognitive biases that happens in people's minds. And once that company is established, it's very hard to break it. Look, I mean, what Microsoft spent $5 billion trying to convince us that Bing had better search results than Google. And maybe it did, but we didn't care yeah. because that bias that had already been in our heads. It was part of our daily routine. It was all this, you know, so, you know, they couldn't make that happen. And that's the case over and over again. So if you're in a space with a clear category winner, then the most you're ever going to hope for is to scrape some market share off of the bottom. And you're going to have to do it by constantly making an argument that our thing is. 10% faster or our thing is 10% cheaper or whatever else. It's a really hard way to do business. And yes, there's lots and lots of companies that succeed by doing that and they have a decent business and they sell it to somebody else down the line and they make lots and lots of people do that. It's not a terrible strategy. However, if you want to be that kind of breakout leader, do not find yourself in that position. Find a way to get out of that category and create something that feels new and feels like you're the one who is making the rules for that category and that you have a chance of winning it over time. And you're going to have a much more exciting business, even if it's in a smaller market space than what you were in before. And you have a bigger chance of going big and being recognized. Now, one sort of counterpoint to that is that in some of the data work that we did working on the book and things we've studied ever since, categories take a while to form. Well, just because some company starts a category in day one, this whole, remember the old idea of first mover advantage, which was all total bullshit, it never actually worked. First mover doesn't mean anything. But over time, five, six years into a category, somebody emerges as that dominant design of that category. Right. And so if you're in a category where there's like a whole bunch of players that are trying to figure out what this thing is, and nobody's really won yet, you, you might want to be in there and you still have a chance of winning that category and becoming the dominant design five, six years into the category. But if you're past that point and there already is a clear dominant design, then there's no reason to be in it. There's a better reason to get out. It's interesting with companies. I work with lots of good-sized companies and enterprise level, and you'll see them do the mergers and acquisitions. They're not growing organically, so they go buy the competitors, and which that merger and acquisition, and we go through it in seasons, it seems. It really does. There's a lot of distraction there. It takes years to complete. And as you know, as a journalist, it often fails to add any shareholder value. Matter of fact, you can sometimes see the stock price actually go down when they've done right. it, but it's a distraction versus the time involved in maybe creating a new category. Is there, in your experience working with these different companies, I know your process, a lot of people might think we don't have the months and years in order to create this whole new category, but your process, you've narrowed that thing down to about three weeks or so. And within that 21-day window, companies can come out with a clear path, and then it's about executing the strategy at that. Because I know you help them with their POV, their point of view, their story, their messaging, and they get that. And it's really coming from their creation. It's not coming from you. You're facilitating a process with your process that harvests the intellectual wisdom, the intellectual capital of that organization, because they have the answers themselves. They just need someone to ask the right questions, right? So is it easier then to create that category rather than go out and try and maybe go buy by a competitor or can both strategies work at the same time? Both strategies can work if you've got a mature business and a mature category and you want to add market share. And if you're already the winner and you've got 70% of the share and you want to buy a competitor and soak up another 10%, that can be just a solid business decision. But in the long run, yeah, creating new categories out of the business you already have, who's been brilliant at that has been Bezos at Amazon. Yeah. And he built a retailer, realized he had all his computing power, built another, what was at the time a brand new category, essentially, what's Amazon Web Services, basically cloud computing by the 
Everybody uses them. Apple, Google, everybody uses them. And everybody followed them. He tried, not as big, but he tried to create a new category around Kindle and eBooks and all that. And constantly Alexa, which has not been a huge success. I'm looking at the one on my floor. That's the- Careful saying her name. She just starts from, yeah. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, so even mature businesses, like a good strategy is to constantly try to create these brand new categories over and over again. We wrote about in the book, we wrote about yep. the morning glass. And a hundred and whatever it is, 60, 70 year old company that every 15 years or so creates some entirely new category of glass product that didn't exist before. And that's why it's had this constant forward motion as a company over the decades. And so it can work even in a big old enterprise. No, and you're starting to see it. Even companies like Apple, Apple introduced their new virtual reality and glass. And again, they've used a combination of two technologies in order to create something new, which get released in 2024. So it does happen. Is there a step in your process? Let's walk through the process that you take companies through an organization. There's like a three, four step process that you have, and people can see it. You outline it quite well on the website. We'll give all that information there as well. What's the first step in the category design consultation process? We understand that companies don't especially tech startups, right? They don't have like ages to go through a no. process. And so we try to do this in a very condensed way, three weeks, four weeks, and you don't go from the starting point to having a fully fledged, fleshed out vision and POV document that describes it all that. So step one really is, we call it discovery, right? It's about, we just need you to answer some questionnaire stuff, send us material, that tells us what you do and why you do it and stuff we can study. And just, as you also said, we don't come in saying, we're going to be McKinsey and study your market and come in and tell you what to do. We believe you know what to do. Right. You just haven't formulated it quite yet. And so we take all of that. And then the best way to do this is to have this all-day workshop with the leadership team. Should be six to 12 people maybe in the room plus us. And we just lead this conversation that at the beginning anyway, focuses a lot on what is the problem that needs to be solved? Does the world need you to exist? And what is it that you can do and bring to the world that is going to matter? What's the missing that's out there that needs to be solved? Because I know you have these kinds of conversations too, that it's a weirdly hard problem for people in the business to answer. They've been running this business for years and you ask them, what problem do you solve? And they have a terrible time to answer because yeah. what they want to tell you about is, oh, but our product does this. And no, I'm not actually what your product does. What problem do you solve? And it leads to a very interesting... Not what it is. People don't buy what it is, what the widget is. They buy what the widget does. I'm an iPhone user. I don't care the form. Matter of fact, if it's laying on the table next to other devices, I can't tell which one's mine. They all look the same, but I buy it because I'm unleashed. I buy it because I can be on a river in Europe talking to clients and they have no clue where I'm at. It's got my phone on it. It's got a camera on it. It's got my email on it. It's got my browsing, my reading material on it. That's why I buy it. Not because of what it is. It could look like anything. I remember what they first looked like. I bought one then too. So you take them through the design first. And I know when you do your engagements, you've got different levels of engagement with companies. So if it's more of a mid-stage startup or an established organization, you can take them through an engaged category design process that you have. And again, why should it take months and months? It really doesn't if you're asking the right questions. So obviously from your 30 plus years of experience and then with your partners, you've learned to ask the right questions in order to harvest that information. Then you also offer guided category design as well. So we can do it via Zoom and remote. So obviously that got probably born during the pandemic, I'm assuming. Born, born during the pandemic because we had to figure out how to do this by Zoom. It's not as much fun as doing it live, but it can be done. It's functional, sure. Uh, but also the other realization that we had was that the big engaged project is expensive. It, you know, it does require everybody to be on site. There's a lot of heavy lifting to that. And not every company was 
big enough or had the cash to the budget something like that we created this other kind of lighter version where we do it remotely by zoom travel costs eliminated all that time you know is eliminated and we offload some of what we would do to the client instead of us doing it but we guide them through the whole process and it's a fraction of the cost of doing the big projects sure do you have a transformative story if you were going to give us an example and you can mention a name or not of a client company where you got them and you took them through the process and here's what came out of the end of that process here's how they've employed that strategy out of the process and here's where they are today and i know you have lots of clients on your website people can go see some of your clients in different ways like we'll do the linkedin store that seemed to be transformative for them in one particular way there was another company that unfortunately for various different reasons, some of what we did with them unraveled. But this is a good example, for instance. There was a company in the UK called Zetson, and this is a classic technological founder kind of thing, right? Sure. And it started with an invention. A scientist had created a way for a small like patch with some like very tiny wires in it, essentially to shoot electrical signals, like harmless electrical signals into almost anything, have them bounce back and read it and be able to understand what was in that, what was it composed of, sure. what's in there. And so they had hundred ideas of what they could do with this. And that was their problem because they were trying to do a hundred different things and trying to address different customers in completely different industries. And they didn't know how to talk to them and all this. And so they were treading water and having minimal success, but they knew they had something that could do something really interesting. And so the category design process with them was all about figuring out what was the real problem they could solve with this technology that was going to really matter. It was going to be something that they felt that they could chase after. And it narrowed down to solving the problem of reading what's in your blood, essentially, without having to prick your blood, like a diabetic, without having to sure. turn your blood out, like being able to have this patch that would actually read the glucose in your blood 24-7 and start with that and make it a medical device. And so there was a real problem you could define and in a direction. So what ends up happening, like I was telling you, we try to assemble the six or eight or 10 leaders in the room because part of going through that process means that everybody is starting to narrow down to the same solution, the same idea. So by the time we were done, the team believed that this was the direction to go in and that we could help frame it and all that. And it could give them a way to, to go forward. That's one thing we see is a company has a whole lot of different strategic directions that they can't quite decide on. Chasing um, shiny and, objects, yeah. they get distracted. What's the enemy of the innovation within the organization or the enemy to that change? Would it be like R&D department? Do people protect their silos? I'm sure it's all of the above. We run into it as well, where they've got a path they think it should be done. So is it tough to get consensus from that executive team? You know, I would say that remarkably, by the time we go through the process we go through, it's almost always a consensus. There's almost always a kind of a applause for themselves, essentially, at the end, because they've all agreed on this thing and they've all feel good about it. Now, every situation has somebody else who is the lagging doubter or like, for instance, sometimes if we end up settling on a category that is maybe quite different from what the company's already doing or a little you know, visionary and out there, one of the first groups of people to be unhappy about are the salespeople because they're looking at it and saying, how am I going to sell that? Is it going to impact my success of, of trying to sell this th very tangible thing that we have right now, selling this future vision or whatever? So sales might sometimes come down on that side of things. Sure. But other times it's others. Sometimes the product group is going, this is brilliant. And I think the world needs this thing, but we have no idea how to build it. And so that becomes a stalling 
point. But so we can usually get through that. You yeah. usually manage to get through that. You've said that as a CEO or a leader, that one of the most important jobs is to condition people's brains. What does that really take to market yourself in a way that really convinces people that you're the one to watch? You're the one to pay attention to. Okay. So first of all, so many CEOs fail at telling people why they need what they're making. Fail at actually being able to describe the problem that exists in the world. If a friend or a psychologist or whatever, you're going to therapy, can describe to you the problem and capture it really well, you feel like, oh, they understand. That person understands me. And if they understand me, they probably understand how to help me. And so if you as a company or as a CEO can make your potential customers feel like you really understand the world they're in right now, the challenges they face, the problems that they're encountering, that's the first step towards having them feel like, okay, they understand what I'm going through. And so I'm going to listen when they say, I have a way to solve that problem that we just described. And from my experience, going back to being a reporter for all those years, going through the category design, many dozens of category design projects, those companies are often terrible at that. And the ones who are great at it, and the great category designers of Mark Benioff of Steve Jobs or whatever, they did that really well. Steve Jobs, I think you tell the story, you know, his big line was, I want to put a dent in the universe. And everybody goes, hey, that's awesome. That's cool. Let's do that. So it's that purpose. It's finding that purpose and defining why we exist and telling your story. And it needs to be not just a mission statement behind the desk. I can't tell you how many times I've sat and I see the mission statement or their vision statement behind the CEO's desk. And I ask them without looking to tell me what it is. And they can't even tell me. And they can't even tell me. So, no, that makes sense. And in those mission statements are usually what my co-author, Chris Lockhead, would call a word salad. Yeah, exactly. I can see where the F-bombs start to roll out when you start talking about some of those things, too. It makes sense. (laughs) It's all about innovation. It's always about continually eat your lunch before the competition does. Once they've defined a category and they've gone through the process, are they able to do that again? It's kind of like, and I know you've heard this multitudes of times, you're almost like a psychotherapist for businesses and organizations. You're going there asking all the right questions. You don't necessarily have the solutions they do. And you assume that they do, but you know which questions to ask. And there's value in that, huge value in that. Is, is it a revisiting? Is it a quarterly thing with organizations? Is there a proper, hey, how can we maintain this and sustain this so that we do this again and again and again, just as often as we want to? Companies bring you in each time. How does that work? Um, a couple of answers to that. So one is that we find that when we go through this process with companies, it actually puts this way of thinking into their mindset into the culture of the company. And it's been thrilling to see how some of our clients have then just kind of rolled with this on their own afterwards because they know how to talk about it. They know how to do this. And we'll often tell these prospective clients, one of the things we're giving you is actually this mindset in your culture. However, the other thing is we like to work with companies that will give us as part of the fee for us equity in the company. And we do that because we say, look, we want to have a stake in your outcome too. And we want you to be able to call us six years from now and say, we need help with this sort of category thinking thing again. And then we're going to say, well, we're partners and owners. We're just going to do it. We're not going to go and turn our clock back on and charge you again. And that's been a really satisfying thing. COVID in different ways changed the context for a number of our clients, companies that served offices. When people aren't going to the offices, there was a lot of different ways that things changed dramatically. And some of those companies reached back out to us and said, look, the context we're dealing with has changed a lot and our category is going to shift with it. Can we rethink this? We work with them. We actually reached out to some companies. We had this one company that was doing this kind of live personal in-home trainer on your phone. This thing was a very unique way of approaching that. And when COVID hit, it was like, 
this is manna for you guys. Suddenly everybody's trapped in their homes. They can't go to the gym. How can we frame this category as something that every person who's trapped in from COVID kid would want to use? So yeah, there are ways and reasons to do this over and over again. Right. It doesn't always involve having to bring us aboard because a lot of companies know how to do it themselves once they go through it. It's teaching them a process to use that part of their brain and take time to actually work on the business. This has been very interesting. So the book is called Play Bigger, How Pirates, Dreamers, and Innovators create and dominate markets. Where did pirates come into that? How did that get into the byline? That's because those three guys. That's who they are. Part. Yeah. Whether <laughs> small or large, I know there's like just a handful of them, but they don't want to grow big. They run a small business. They run it out of their home. They live where they work. They enjoy their right. day. They don't have all the headaches. So it works for small organizations as well. We'll have the website so people will be able to find you and they can get your book and they can order it where they buy their favorite book. Highly recommend the book. Great read. And thank you so much for sharing some of your strategies, your insights with us. Great, Michael. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. This podcast is created and associated with Summit Media. My executive producer is Beth Smith and director of research, Tori Smith. The fee for the show is that you share it with friends when you find something useful or interesting. This podcast is subject to copyright by Summit Media. Goodbye.